from Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment. This is the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm sick and tired of waking up with the certainty that I'll be sitting right where I'm sitting now for as much of the day as I can afford to spend in the one chair. Yeah. <laughs> TV icon Norman Lear is, much like all of us, sick and tired of being locked down in these COVID times. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this bonus Golden Globes edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Jane Fonda, this year's Cecil B. DeMille Award recipient, as well as Norman Lear, who will be honored with the third ever Carol Burnett Award. Back-to-back interviews with two Hollywood icons. Coming up next, stay close. It sounds like a punchline, but it is true. Jane Fonda has had so many awards that they once broke a shelf. It was during her marriage to Ted Turner. Prior to that, she never really had her accolades, which include two Academy Awards, two BAFTAs, seven Golden Globes, and a Primetime Emmy Award on display. But then she moved in with Turner, and she noticed how Turner's gigantic office was lined with trophies from his sailing. So at their home in Montana, Fonda created a case with glass shelves, and then the shelves broke. Fonda will soon have more hardware to display as she's been tapped to receive the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes on February 28, an honor that has been bestowed upon the likes of Oprah Winfrey, Jodie Foster, Meryl Streep, and Tom Hanks. Variety's Janelle Riley recently spoke to Fonda about her career, the award in Yes, Those Broken Shelves. They began by discussing Fonda's reaction to being selected for the award. Actually, I shed a few tears. <laughs> I was very, I was totally taken aback and, um, and I was very moved. I like, I like the Hollywood foreign press and, um, and I'm going to talk a bit about that. That's all I know yet about what I'm going to say, but I, I'm going to talk a bit because I've, I've gotten to know them in another capacity. Yeah. You know, they restore movies, for example. That's right. I was just looking down at my stats because you like them. They love you. You have 15 Golden Globe nominations and seven wins. Wow. Lost (laughs) some trophies along the way. I don't have have them all. (laughs) I was actually curious about that. I mean, it sounds silly, but when you have as many accolades as you do, do do you keep them all in one place? Do you have like a special room? Well, I never did. I I never, in fact, I, you know, I, my dad was anti-awards and so I thought that I should be too, but then I married Ted Turner and he has, Ted's office is about the size of a football field and it's lined with trophies from his sailing. And it really struck me, you know, this dude, he's not, he's not ashamed of putting out all his trophies. I mean, literally there were thousands. And so we, we built a home together in Montana and I created a case with, with the glass shelves and I put all my awards on them and the shelves broke and some of the trophies broke. Oh no. I had enough to cause them to break. So, <laughs> <laughs> that is such a flex that, <laughs> that you broke a, a trophy shelf. I love that. Did you intend ever get competitive with that or was it all in good fun? There was no competition because I mean, when I tell you he had thousands, I mean it. Literally, it was the whole walls all the way were covered with cases of trophies, wow. sailing trophies. Um, before we get too much into your your career and what you're doing now, I actually want to talk about these two. I don't know if you consider um, 
than both documentaries. I mean, obviously the nine to five documentary is, is qualifies for that genre. How did you get involved with that? Which one? Oh, uh, sorry. The nine to five one, uh, about the women in the workplace. Oh, Oh. well, it was, I think 1972. And, um, I was, I was, uh, with Tom Hayden and we started an organization called the Indochina peace campaign. And we decided to do a national tour, um, three months, 80 cities, more. It was one of the most successful and grueling things I've ever done in my entire life. And in pockets all around the country where we were stopping, you know, mostly we, we were aiming for middle America. So it was the middle of the country. Activists that we knew mostly Tom knew because he had a history in the movement. Would we would meet with them? Well, one of them was Karen Nussbaum um, in Boston, and she. Uh, we became friends, and her day job was organizing women office workers. She's the main character in the documentary, um, and you know, after especially as the war was winding down, and our, our tours, we did two in, a, in two years in a row you know, had a lot to do with it. They were very successful. But she would start telling me stories about uh, women office workers. And I would listen to these stories. And one day I said to her, this, you know, I, I want to make a movie about this. You know, and then eventually it became nine to five. Only yeah. the organization that she had was called nine to five. So I wanted to name the movie nine to five. And uh, that, that's how it came about. And she and I have stayed very close. It's, not surprising to me, um, it's it's actually a little troubling how relevant that movie is, even today, how relevant it has remained over the years. Did you know at the time you were making it that this was going to be really a classic? Um, I had a feeling that the movie was going to be very successful and, and would be a, a classic. Um, what I didn't know, and I'm sorry to have to say this, is the conditions for office workers is worse today than it was you know, um, today, a lot of these office workers are hired by uh, contracting firms and they're contracted out. It's gig economy, which means, you know, very difficult to to get redress for problems that are happening, wage theft, sexual abuse, all kinds of things that go on every bit as much as they used to. But now who do you go to? You're, you you know, you don't even see the boss because you're, you're a contract worker. Plus because of social media, computers and everything, you can be spied on a lot more easily. And so a lot of office workers now are working two or three jobs just to be able to, well, they're really suffering now with, with the COVID pandemic, but it's, it's tr- It's a terrible situation for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You you look at that movie and you want to say how far we've come. And yet, in many ways, we haven't. We've actually gone backwards. What the movie did was it explained what the problems were so that the workers didn't have to keep telling people what was wrong. And we could start addressing what needed to be done about it. And it helped build the the movie. I mean, after the movie came out, the organization Nine to Five became a union. It became part of SEIU. Yeah, I love that Nine to Five is like it's it's part of our vernacular now. 
Yeah. It's really kind of cool. Um, I am also so excited about FTA because this is sort of legendary. I've heard about it over the years, but it hasn't really been in circulation. At at what point did you talk about getting it back out there? And, and you know, did, did they express interest in, in finally letting people see this movie? For, for about a year, we've been, we've been talking about it. You know, I saw it, we had a screening, I think it was early in 2020 before COVID at the Egyptian theater. I hadn't seen it in a while. And I was just, I was blown away by how um, good our politics were. You know, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the diversity of the cast in terms of how we interacted with local people. I mean, it was it was way ahead of its time. And it's very interesting for people to see what was going on then. There's this false myth that the peace movement was over here and the soldiers were over here and they hated the peace movement. This really puts a rest to that, to that myth. I've taped... Um, an introduction to kind of five minutes to give it a political, a a historical context and explain that this comes out of a whole movement called the GI movement of anti-war active duty service men and women. There were only 10,000 women in in the service at that time. But um, so I kind of put it in the context and it's, yeah, I'm excited that it's coming out. It's very interesting. How does it uh, sort of hold up? Again, is it more relevant than ever? I mean, you, you shot this in 72, I believe. Yeah. Wow. Is it more relevant than ever? Um, when you saw all the service men, and they were all men, brought out during the, the George Floyd protests around the country, especially in D.C., you know, all those, all those uh, military people, um, and I couldn't help but wonder if push came to shove, what side they would be on, because I have such an experience, you know, a lot of experience of them being on the side of democracy because of what happened back during the Vietnam War. You know, they were willing, they risked a lot um, to, uh, you know, there were there were a bunch of black soldiers from I think it was Fort Bliss in Texas who were called to do riot duty in Chicago in 1968, and they refused to go. I wonder if they would today. That's you know a new a new question for us all. I mean, you're obviously still so active today in activism. You have your fire drill Fridays. Um, I'm so excited to be taping this on a Friday. Um, yeah, we we just finished. That's why I'm here with my my red on. You know that in 2020 we had more than nine million viewers across all platforms. Right. And already in the first month of 2021, we've had 300 and I think 65,000 viewers. That's fantastic. Um, I feel like we're in a place right now. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, people are more appreciative of activism. Like we, we've moved away from telling people, especially actors, that they shouldn't speak out on issues. There's still some of that. I feel there there always will be. Do you think that times have changed? Do you feel that people are more appreciative of, the, of this really important work you're doing? I think that grotesque and terrifying as they were these last four years. The other side of that coin is 
After a year of campaigning, then there was the election of 2016. A whole lot of people said, oh, my God, I'd better start figuring out why this happened. And how do we hold back the floodwaters from sweeping away our democracy? I know that I, for one, I mean, I've I've always read black literature and and history, but I was very intentional starting in 2016 about studying slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration. You know, so I, I think that a whole lot of people got so scared that they started paying a whole lot of attention. I mean, like, how many people knew about the Electoral College and understood what it was? or the filibuster, you know. I mean, only in the best, most elite schools do they really teach civics. And yet during the last four years, we have had to learn because we were watching media that was explaining all this stuff, how the government works and how fragile democracy is. I don't think any of us really realized how fragile democracy is. And so, what that is, I think it's it's why, you know, in the summer when when George Floyd was murdered and Breonna Taylor and all of the uprisings started to happen, they were so big and they lasted so long and they were so diverse. There were towns in California that are all white that were out marching with Black Lives Matter signs. I think it was all just, we cannot let this homophobic, racist, misogynistic, xenophobic toxin take over our country. We have to fight. And and so, the, you know, there's always another side to the coin. That's the side, the good side to the tox- the other side, which is so toxic. And and consequently, yeah, I think I think people welcome any, you know, any intelligent well thought out form of resistance. And that includes fire drill Fridays, but also Fridays for Future and the Sunrise Movement and 350.org and Black Lives Matter and so many organizations now that are that are really, you know, the memberships have grown and, and people understand the importance of these organizations. And, you know, especially with Georgia, people really saw how important every single vote is. I think in two years when we go back to vote again, there's gonna be a much bigger, all these young people that are gonna turn 18 and you know, they're all, they understand now how important it is. We all do mm-hmm. and, and how important grassroots organizing is. So, you know, we've come through this wiser and braver. I agree. I have a friend who lives in Georgia and I'm always thanking her as though she completely won the election for us because yeah. <laughs> every vote does count. Um, I'm curious, uh, moving over to your acting career, I know obviously we're not out and about on the streets right now, but but when you would be out, what are the things that people want to talk to you about the most? Is it Grace and Frankie? Is it On Golden Pond or Clute, which uh, has been coming up a lot lately, strangely? Well, it depends on who they are. If I'm walking down the street and I look up and I see a group of Hispanic or African-American girls who've recognized me, I know exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be Monster-in-Law. 
without fail, it'll be monster. I love that. You know, that's out of love for Jennifer Lopez. A lot of people went to that movie and discovered who I was. People who've never seen a movie of mine. For other people, I think, you know, Grace and Frankie is hugely popular. And so, you know, whereas prior to Grace and Frankie, it might have been on Golden Pond or Cat Baloo, <laughs> um, Barefoot in the Park, uh, it's always it's usually the comedies. Um, now it's Grace and Frankie, and especially women. It's given them hope and made them laugh during a difficult time. Are you guys back to shooting yet? I know you had to shut down, but we start in June. Yeah, oh, great. <laughs> I need that new season, even though it's the last season, which is yeah. so sad but beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. The last time I saw you, actually, we were doing a Q and A for Grace and Frankie, and. You knew you you had some intel that that night Pete Davidson and Paul Red were going to be rapping about the show. Yeah, <laughs> right. And what I loved about it was that it was they they really knew the show. It was clearly an affectionate homage, but it was also very honest. They like really got into what makes the show special. I mean, what's it like having Pete Davidson as a fan? Pretty great. It was great. <laughs> it meant a lot to us. Yeah, your little cameo was wonderful too. <laughs> Um, I know I don't have much time, but um, what I did want to ask is, from an acting perspective, are you still learning new things, even at this stage in your career? On every level. I mean, acting, mm -hmm. politics, life, relationships, friendships. I mean, I'm, I just feel like I'm always learning. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, working with Lily, I learn a lot watching her. She's such a genius. Um, you know, it, <laughs> It's been a year, you know, and then for the last two years, I have only worked in acting for five weeks. Wow. So, you know, there's always the question is, can I still do it? Will I remember how to do it? I have a feeling, I know I read somewhere, I can't remember who it was that said, it's not like riding a bicycle. You know, you don't just, but I think it probably is. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to starting it up again. What do you think has been your most challenging role? Well, probably the character of Gertie Nevels in The Dollmaker. I did it for ABC television and won an Emmy for it. It was certainly the character that she was an illiterate hillbilly from the hills of Tennessee. Um, I did a huge amount of really fun and profound research um, for that, but it was, uh, it was the biggest, you know, outside my comfort zone movie that I, uh, that I did. Oh, it's so good. I'm actually glad you referenced it because people should find it and check it out. I remember seeing it, oh my goodness, many years ago and it, it's really stayed with me. Well, I actually think I'm over my time, but is there anything you wanted to add that I've forgotten or specific you want to say about the award or? No, I, I mean, it's a real honor. I'm very, very honored to receive it. I'm kind of overcome. Um, how much talking do you think I should do? What, what <laughs> <are> you... <laughs> Actually, there's one thing I want to say about FTA, because I've read about it so much over the years. Um, I obviously haven't seen the film. I'm excited to. But there was a very famous sketch where they talked about storming the Capitol. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, again, talk about timely. Is that included in the film? <laughs> No, you know, it opened 
um, in, in a theater in New York. It played for one week and then it disappeared. All of the copies, it all, it just disappeared. We were told that the, I can't remember the name of the distribution company, that the head of it was a friend of Richard Nixon. I, I, I'm, I don't know if that's true, but it disappeared and it, it's been very hard. So this is like a little gem that has been resurrected by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. They put the money up so that Indy Collect, another uh, restoration company, Indy Collect, it's one word, um, then restored it. So, you know, I'm really grateful to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. That's Jane Fonda, this year's Cecil B. DeMille honoree at the Golden Globe Awards this Sunday. In his 2014 memoir, Even This I Get to Experience, TV legend Norman Lear writes about the busiest period of his life as a time of joyful stress. The 1970s were the pinnacle of Lear's success as an Uber producer, and at one point he simultaneously had eight shows on the air, including such landmark sitcoms as All in the Family, One Day at a Time, Sanford and Son, Good Times, Maud, The Jeffersons, and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. The kudos continue to roll in, even as Lear, who turns 99 this year, remains active in the entertainment business. He continues to operate Act 3 Productions with business partner Brent Miller, and together, the two just announced a reboot of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman from Schitt's Creek star Emily Hampshire and Letterkenny executive producer Jacob Tierney. The pair are also producing an animated take on Good Times, along with Steph Curry's production company and Seth MacFarlane for Netflix, which just gave the show a 10-episode order. Lear and Miller won two Primetime Emmys in 2019 and 2020 for executive producing with Jimmy Kimmel, the wildly successful live-in-front-of-a-studio audience events, which recreated episodes of All in the Family, The Jeffersons, and Good Times. And their new take on One Day at a Time from Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce wrapped after a critically acclaimed four-season run last year. I recently spoke to Lear and Miller about this recent flurry of activity and began by asking Lear how it compares to other periods of his tremendous career. I'm enjoying the question because I'm enjoying thinking about the answer. (laughs) And it has a lot to do with the fact that there was no difference in my waking up this morning from any other day in my life. I woke up yet again, thank God, and I love waking up to a fresh day. And uh, seeing you guys earlier in the day ain't a bad thing at all. I enjoy it. Yeah, the success of uh, One Day at a Time, the success of Live in Front of a Studio Audience, uh, you know, it's the it's success begets success, and there's so much interest now in your library and in, in reinventing, you know, from, from an animated Good Times to now a new version of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think about this, this, this new interest in uh, sort of, uh, you know, reinventing some, some of your classic titles and, and uh, you know, the timing of, of how all of this is happening now? What, what, well, I, I love it. You know, I never as much as I've enjoyed and I have all my life enjoyed, as much as I've enjoyed animation all my life, I've never been involved with it. And here I get the opportunity uh, to see a piece of ours rendered in animation. And I, I love it. 
I love it. It's exciting as hell. Brent, how would you sort of describe this period of time uh, for, for Act 3 and, and how productive you guys have been over the past uh, couple of years? I mean, I have no reason to complain, obviously. I, uh, I, I, I think in the beginning when we, we set out to, to explore one day at a time, it was, it was you know, essentially an experiment. And, and let's, see, let's see what happens. And, and fortunately, Norman was was willing to give his blessing and, and allowing us to pursue uh, one of his original um, properties and to see what we could you know, do as far as reimagining it. And I think that with the success of that, and as you said, the continued interest, it felt like why not continue to explore and pay homage to all of these great properties that he had created with his team uh, earlier on. They're all still relevant. They're all interesting. And they're a whole lot of fun. And, and, and now, of course, in, in sort of working so closely with Rita Moreno over the past couple of years to then sort of segue into, uh, you know, doing this celebration of, of her on, on film, that's sort of a great sort of side product of, of all of this, too. Uh, so, so Have you seen it yet, Michael? I haven't yet. I haven't gotten a copy yet. You, you'll love it. It's, it's wonderful. Her life is an American glory. And they were, it's rendered so well on film. It's really lovely. This is three years in the making, this project, and it was like my, my personal passion project. Uh, after meeting Rita and after finishing uh, the film on Norman with Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, I was looking for something to do in, in, in the nonfiction space of what was next in our, you know, our, our doc world. And after listening, I, and I did listen to it, I didn't read it, but I listened to, to Rita's autobiography. I was like, why has nobody done a story on this woman? And, uh, and fortunately, she, she trusted in us to tell her story, Yeah, um, which none of us have any reason to regret. Yeah, no, I, I and and I last got to talk to her last June, so I got an earful on how she's been handling quarantine. And <laughs> she, I just want to see another movie about Rita Moreno in quarantine. And and uh, speak, speaking of that, um, you know, wanted to check in on, on both of you, Norman. How how are you doing? We're we're nearly a year into this this. Uh, current reality that we're in. How, how are you sort of handling quarantine now? I fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way I'm handling. Yeah. Do you do you get out? Do you so get I'm sick and tired of waking up with the certainty that I'll be sitting right where I'm sitting now for as much of the day as I can afford to spend in the one chair. Yeah. <laughs> have uh, Have you gotten the uh, the vaccine yet? I've had the first shot. Okay, good, good. Um, do you do you do you get out much, or are you sort of staying safe and staying staying inside? Well, but you know, I've got a lovely patio out here. I've got a little table out here, so the, that's the extent to which I get outside. I don't go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, nobody wishes me to go anywhere. No. I've got a son-in-law physician, and so the whole family is on it. <laughs> Yeah, well, thankfully through modern technology, you're still able to, to communicate with, with all of us and, and do as much as you're doing to, despite all of yeah, this. Yeah, last night we were nine guys 
we have for I don't know how many years uh, had a cigar night about once a week, uh, once a month. Yeah. And so last night was our cigar night. So we're all sitting, looking at each other this way, but it was nine of us. Uh, we were smoking a cigar and had a great conversation for about two and a half hours. Oh, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. Who's in your cigar club? Oh, Glenn, the guys who we did, uh, I, won, uh, I was part of Concord Music. Uh, John Burke and Glenn Barrows, uh, Bob uh, Saget, you know, it's a group of music people. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, and, and uh, you know, since I think I last talked to you, we, we did, like I sort of briefly alluded to, uh, see a transition. I know uh, I've enjoyed your occasional uh, videos on online and your commentary on uh, yeah. <laughs> the changeover. I know you're very happy to see uh, what happened in November. Uh, I, I assume very sad to see what happened in January. Uh but what is sort of your take now on the fragility of democracy and what we've seen over the past month and what your hope is now as this nation sort of recovers from the events of this past month? I know as, as, uh, as somebody who uh, participated in and remembers exceedingly well World War II and that time in America, there, there was a... There was a, a, a love for, affection for, admiration of, there was a feeling about our country that I think has dissipated quite a lot. Uh, or maybe it's just simply out of mind, but it wasn't out of mind and it was in mind. We were, uh, we were very aware of what a special place this was and in which ways it was so special. And, uh, Either it went to our head, and uh, I don't know, it's another time. This is we're we're, we're wrestling with uh, in another culture now. No, it's it's uh, you know I, I think of you a lot in all of your work that you've done through the years, in, in uh, you know from from you know what you've done uh, the with the, the declaration and and also just your your work with people for the American way and 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 all of that and, and hoping that you know. A new generation picks that up as well. Um, I couldn't appreciate hearing anything more. I, I want that new generation picking it up for, for all the right reasons. We, we got a little too much in the, uh, in the uh, chosen people arena, you know, like we are the most special. We want to be just the, as good as we can be as human beings. Yeah, yeah, the American exceptionalism that unfortunately went to our heads. Yes. So this is for your your latest honor, which is for the the Golden Globes, uh, and and sort of celebrating your your body of work. I know it's a question that I'm sure you get asked a lot, but I'm curious if it ever changes when when people ask you, looking back at your career, if there's a specific moment that you think about the most, remain the most proud of, a specific show, a specific win, and a specific thing that generally comes to mind when people ask you to sort of recount your, your, your career. What, what generally is that? I think it is generally the day I'm living. Uh, you know, I, I never woke up to this morning before. It's, it's brand fucking new. 
and uh, and I'm always, you know, I'm not necessarily mentally aware, but my whole physicality is aware of a, 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 another day. Yeah. You're always looking at the next thing. You're always looking at what what's what's next. What are we doing today? What 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 are we what are we selling today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like we are, we all, I'm sure, remember uh, the red the carpet. It's I don't know if we'll see it again the same way. I think about I think about the handshake often that way. Yeah. Will we ever see the handshake come back the way it was? I mean, it was automatic. Yeah. And we exchange handshakes yeah this 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 whole world is going to change this business is is already changing uh yes hey brent you've known mr lear for a long time now uh early on was there something that you were dying to ask him was was there something that you uh a, a piece of information about tv history about about something that you kind of uh were able to ask him or, or sort of were curious about or are there things you still are curious about that you haven't had a chance to ask him well wow, that's a, that's a great question and um i i think that uh i think what i what i wanted the, what i early on what i wanted to ask him and i didn't have to was for permission and i think the the permission he granted from the beginning and I became a sponge. It was a, a whole new education for me, a life-changing uh, moment to to transition from what I was doing into working with with Norman. Uh, when you guys were just talking about January, it reminded me when I first started with Norman. I was uh, helping tour the Declaration of Independence, and it had toured 43 states that had seven more to go. That was his and and Lynn's wish when they bought it was that it toured all 50 states so people could come to it they didn't have to uh i mean so it could come to the people they didn't have to go to it and um and i was fortunate enough to tour that that document in those last seven states and i sometimes will will think about it as i did just now when you guys were talking and feel so lucky's the wrong word i don't i don't really know what the word is to say um, other than, you know, maybe it's honored. Maybe it's, uh, it sometimes is, is unbelievable <laughs> to me that I was able to, to have that, that chapter in my life. So I guess to answer your question in a, in a long winded way, it would be, I would always wanted to ask permission and he gave it, you know, right out of the gate. And, and I do sense that uh, his his ethos of what are we doing today, what are we looking at next, uh, that that's sort of fueling just the amount of activity that uh, you guys have had at, at Act Three over the past couple of years in in all these projects that that you're juggling. Well, I, I think it's it's um, right now it's <laughs> we're only allowed to talk about a handful of projects is is what I'm told, but we have we have many more that we've yet to discuss with you that are all. Uh, uh, in our in our everyday orbit, so I, I am taking it literally one day at a time and enjoying the process. I, in fact, I just called Norman last Friday, telling him how you know how how much I'm learning, and also at the same time how much I'm enjoying what he what he calls in his memoir joyful stress, the stress that he had when he had seven shows, nine shows, whatever it was at, at the same time on the air. And I feel like we're, we're approaching that again. And uh, I'm hopeful that we'll see that 
Uh, he's approaching that again. <laughs> well, I would, I would say we. I would say we. But uh, it's, uh, you know, this, it's, it's kind of amazing what the, what the universe uh, allows for. I think, um, what, what's the quote that you have, Norman, that I, I, I love? Something about conspire, the universe conspires. At the moment of commitment, the entire universe conspires to assure your success. I love that. Yeah. I love it. I think it was Emerson who said that. Norman, talk a little bit more about joyful stress. That, that kind of reminds me of uh, uh, Representative Lewis's uh, Good Trouble quote. Joyful stress. There's, there's joy in being busy. Uh, what did that mean well, to you? It's as simple as it sounds. It's, I suppose it's possible for some people not to feel stressed. Uh, I can't imagine that, but I'll allow it as a possibility. But for the most part, you know, in, in, even doing your best work and enjoying the results of that, uh, there is, a, a, you know, a reasonable amount to a great amount of stress. And uh, if one can learn to accept it joyfully, you know, one can be stressed and understand that he, she is having a good time also. Yeah. And so I've enjoyed an awful lot of that through my career. Yeah. Did you land on that? How did you, as you got super busy, especially in the 70s with so many shows on the air, how, how did you sort of land on, on that space of, of joyful stress? Well, you know, the way I used to answer that question was, uh, I haven't been reminded of this for the longest time, but I always used to say, look, I was, I was planted in the terrain. And the terrain required me to have another leg, I grew another leg. It required me to have another spine, I grew another spine. I don't know how else to explain it. I had two shows on the air. A third show required me to be uh, in a few places uh, several times a week uh, that I hadn't been in before. I somehow, in, in that terrain, and, and the terrain and the culture had something, to, a lot to do with it. I grew what I needed to grow to pay more attention, have more relationships, use myself more. Do you, uh, do you ever go back and watch the old shows? Do you ever find them on, say, say TV? And no, TV? because I'm doing new shows. <laughs> I'm watching friends. Yeah. <laughs> Plenty of new shows to watch. Brent, uh, real quick, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Uh, talk about that and, and selling that. And, and uh, well, you're taking it to market now, but uh, in, in landing the, the, the fine actress from, from Schitt's Creek and, and sort of uh, pursuing that, that uh, and, and sort of making that the next uh, big project. Emily Hampshire uh, came to us, and she couldn't have been more passionate about her plea to want to pursue a reimagining of this show. And to her credit, she had done a whole lot of work to ensure that... A whole lot of work. She is amazing. Exactly. She, she really did a whole lot of work to ensure that, that the show, you know, this reimagining would, would align with her vision and that when we would come on board, we would hopefully agree. And, and if we could be additive, you know, that's... That, 
how, how should I say? We, we, she, basically, she came in with a full package. I mean, she yeah. really knows what she wants this show to be, and she spent a lot of time watching every single episode of that original. And she pays homage to the original. It's, um, it is, yes, a reimagining. It's a new take. It's her as Mary Hartman. But it is, it's very much her version and uh, a modern-day Mary Hartman that, that we're excited about. And um, the partnership with Jacob Tierney, and their long-standing relationship, uh, I'm excited to work with him. I think we're both excited to work with him. He's, uh, I love his work on Letterkenny, and I think that uh, seeing the two of them together uh, is, is, going to, is going to be something special. No, that's that's cool. I, I remember how revolutionary that, that show was uh, when I was a kid, uh, being a nightly... Uh, sort of soap opera satire, uh, and and uh, you know again sort of changed the game of of what TV could could look like. You've mentioned you can't really talk about what else you got going on, but uh, do you get that a lot? Are people coming? Uh, how much are people coming to the two of you and saying we want to adapt this, we want to do this, and and, and sort of how are you balancing that in, in sort of you know making sure it's the right project, the right person, the right way to uh, you know do something new and different. Well, in terms of knowing whether it's the right project, the right way, it's uh, you know by now if I want, if I feel like, if I love something, I don't question it. I mean, it's been a long time since I felt that way, and I, I guess that would be my advice to somebody who is just starting out. If you love it, you feel that they'll love it. You, an audience will love it. Go with your conviction. Don't let anybody talk you out of it unless, but listen, make sure you listen because you may find a way to make what you think is wonderful even better or something more important to you will occur. Go with your conviction, but listen. Brett, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, how can you add to that? I, I think that my hope is as we continue to move forward with a handful of some of these new projects that that networks uh, uh, IPs a shot instead of, you know, I think it's, it's safe to go with, uh, with the properties that people know from 30, 40 years ago, those titles. Uh, and, it, and it makes sense, and I get that. But I think there are a handful of other ideas that, that we have uh, brewing, and, and I'm hoping that the networks will be just as welcoming to those as well. Um, by the way, any uh, chance of uh, live in front of a studio audience uh, sort of making a return, or are we still waiting for the uh, sort of COVID protocols to, to ease up? I, I dug in last week. Yeah? We are, yes, we are, we are absolutely going to do one more of these, and um, at the very least, and uh, I just started that process last week, so uh, we're, we're, we're looking forward to that. Yes. This is Jimmy. Okay. Okay. So, so hopefully, hopefully soon. Cause uh, obviously we, we missed it in the spring, unfortunately, due to the circumstances. So, so maybe fingers crossed. Uh, meanwhile, there, uh, again, this is for the Golden Globes, uh, which I assume uh, it's going to be remote. Have you, uh, Mr. Lear, gotten any sort of sense of how they're going to beam you in? Are they going to bring a camera crew in to uh, talk to you live? It will be virtual and uh, likely live, although they left room for the possibility. If I want to do it uh, pre-recorded, we could, they'll, they'll do that. Yeah. 
That's good. And uh, yeah, this is only the, the third one of this uh, Carol Burnett Award that they're they're giving out. So um, yes, and um, the first male. <laughs> there you go. Norman Lear breaking new ground yet again <laughs> at the Golden Globes. The first male to receive that. We, in that story, we won't say it's only the third person. <laughs> exactly. No, first male. No, no, absolutely. Um, do you do you do uh, when when people ask to, to honor you? Um, is is uh, you know what is your general reaction when when people say we want to give you this? Lifetime Achievement go, Award. Go away. I hate this. <laughs> That's my first reaction. No, I, you know, it's, I never had a problem being noticed. This is true. So, I, I, I imagine it, it could get uh, sort of old hat, um, no pun intended, but um, nonetheless, it's still a great honor when, when people want to recognize you and, and talk about your of career, course, I'm sure. Of course it is. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, I appreciate it, but, uh, you know, I, I hope uh, you both stay safe and, uh, you know, looking forward to what's coming next. Uh, uh, Brent, you've been great in, in keeping in touch, so continue to. And, uh, you know, always excited whenever there's another Act 3 Productions project to write about, and it sounds like there will be. I, I, love, I love hearing that. I've enjoyed this, and I appreciate you so much. Thanks. Norman Lear will receive the Carol Burnett Award on February 28th at the Golden Globes. And that's it for this bonus edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider, hey, that's me, is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar and Globes predictions in key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Jazz Tanke, Janelle Riley, and Clayton Davis, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. <laughs>